if every state had its own moral judgment about what it should be happening in somebody else's state, like how much space should a mother sow have, you can pretty much fragment the U.S. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. That was Dan Sumner with the Ag Economics Department at UC Davis. We're going to speak to him about the decision of the Supreme Court on California Prop 12. But we're also going to be talking to Michael Olson, Food Chain Radio, and we're going to be talking with Gene Bauer. Gene Bauer is the president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary. Gene, I'm happy to have you here today because i got to ask you a question. The Supreme Court's made a decision about Prop 12, and people have heard quite a bit about it now, and it, it does have implications, obviously, for certainly how food is produced that intends to be sold in California. So let me ask you, Gene, why should we care about this? Why, why should we pay attention, uh, either applaud or be worried about the Supreme Court decision? Well, the Supreme Court decision has to do with a law that was passed in California through a voter initiative where nearly two-thirds of the citizens voted that certain practices should not be allowed in California where animals are put in cages and crates packed so tightly they can't turn around and stretch their limbs. And that law also says that products from such places cannot be sold in California. So the industry challenged this law and it went to the U.S. Supreme Court who said that this law stands. And I think it is significant because it says that we as a society do not accept certain types of cruelty as okay. And the court also said that it's appropriate for the state of California to uphold certain standards. And this law does not prevent people in other states from doing different things, but it does prohibit certain practices that were produced that were are cruel according to california citizens would not be acceptable uh in terms of selling products in california so it it st- sets a standard i think it's a humane standard i think it's an appropriate standard and it speaks to our humanity that's really the big question what do we owe other animals what is appropriate in terms of how we treat other animals and and i would say that there are certain things that are outside the bounds of acceptable conduct. And I think that the industrial agriculture industry has adopted practices that are inconsistent with societal values. And I think that this California law and now the Supreme Court decision upholds this idea that agribusiness needs to be accountable and act according to basic humane standards. You don't have to have to point out, though, too, there are really large farms that don't use gestation crates. In particular, uh, some people defend it and say, well, it keeps them from laying on pigs, but that's a different crate. Farrowing crates are still excluded. So you can, for a short period of time, a sow could be in a, a crate that keeps her from laying on newborn pigs. But the gestation crates in, in particular, a lot of people find this puzzling, but it's like four months almost that they can't move, that they're in, in these crates. So 
How long have you been working on this? How long have you had this uh, in mind and, and maybe able to influence the conversation and get other groups to jump on board? Did it go back before Prop 12 was voted on? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I've been working on these issues since the 1980s. Uh, have lived on a farm since the late 1980s, taking care of animals that were rescued from these kinds of conditions. Um, and over the years, we've attempted to pass several laws to restrict inhumane confinement. And we succeeded for the first time in Florida in 2002 through a voter initiative where citizens voted to ban gestation crates. And then since then, uh, about so states have now acted to prohibit some of these cruel practices, including California. Uh, but California first did this in 2008 with Proposition 2. And that was also challenged in court. And so in 2018, Proposition 12 was enacted, which tightens the language of Proposition 2 and also prohibits the sale of certain products. So um, I've been at it for a long time, and I'm very grateful that the Supreme Court upheld California's law. You know, and I wonder about the beginnings of these things, and then we're going to talk about the future of these kinds of things. But I wonder, when you had this concern, you started finding like-minded organizations. I mean, you could say, okay, we need to do something. Uh, and somehow, uh, in the early days, there were conversations with who ended up drafting the proposition and, and that sort of thing. But but that must have been an interesting time, uh, setting up phone calls and setting up laymen. We, we need to do something, and, and it evolved into the first proposition, and then now the second proposition. And now here we are, so many years later, the U.S. Supreme Court upholding it all. It's quite a journey. Gene, you should write a book. <laughs> I actually have written a couple books. My first one talks about the substance of this and actually does mention uh, Prop 2 in California. Actually, it was right before Prop 2 in California, but it mentions the initiatives previously in Florida and Arizona. Um, but, you know, it has been a very interesting process. And thankfully, many people share the concerns that other animals should be treated with basic decency. And thankfully, we have amazing attorneys, volunteers, people from all walks of life who care about this. And also, I think increasingly, we're able to connect with farmers who have, I think, in many cases, felt uncomfortable being pressed and forced to do things that they don't feel very good about. And ideally, we would like to create a food system where farmers are recognized for their skill and for their responsibility and for their conscientiousness. And instead of ending up on treadmills, you know, like they go into debt and they end up having to pay off, you know, loans and pay off bills that forces them to act in ways that they don't necessarily feel very good about. And so confinement agriculture, gestation crates, other forms of industrial production oftentimes require that farmers go into debt and they end up on this treadmill. So I'm hopeful that in the future, we will be able to create a different kind of food system that is less capital intensive, where farmers are actually farmers instead of factory workers, and where farmers are respected and people pay a reasonable price and pe farmers get paid a reasonable wage. So we have a ways to go, but yeah. I think this initiative and the Supreme Court decision is a step in that direction. Well, let's talk about one more thing about those steps. Some would say there are choices that could be made 
and, and have been able to be made in the past. Somebody could buy directly at a farmer's market. Somebody could know a farmer and know how their products are raised. Uh, somebody could buy organic. Uh, there are, you know, different stores that are identifying production practices. So what do you say to those that say, well, options existed before. People did have choices if that was a big concern. They didn't necessarily have to have it required for the whole state. How do you address that? Well, I think it is true that people have choices, but I think in certain areas, the choices are very limited. In certain communities, it's very hard to find fresh produce. And in this country, unfortunately, farm bill subsidies and other government policies have incentivized a food system that has made fast food, junk food cheap and accessible, and it has not made healthy food, produce, the kinds of foods that we need to eat more of, very accessible. So um, there are choices, but for some people, it's very hard to find the kinds of foods that they actually need. Um, and the organic market's only been around, you know, really growing since I guess the 80s or 90s. And it's been growing regularly, which shows that there is a consumer demand. Um, but I think we still need more access to fresh fruits and vegetables, especially in communities uh, that have been underserved and not well, uh, not given good access to the foods that we really need. And so we need our government programs to incentivize that instead of incentivizing corn and soy and feed crop production and industrial animal production and dairy production. We're, we're producing more dairy than we need, and we're still incentivizing the production of more dairy. Meanwhile, we need more fruits and vegetables. The average American gets only about one-tenth as many fruits and vegetables as they should get. So our farm subsidies should incentivize the type of food system that serves people, the planet, and is better for animals too. Well, Gene, let's go back to this journey because you've been on this for over 30 years that you've been wanting to move this direction. And now the very significant thing in 2023, a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court what does that pretend to the future? Are there similar actions that might be taking place? Do you think maybe other states will be encouraged to put into place um, some sort of rules or regulations similar to what exists as a result of Prop 12 in California? What's a future look like now that the Supreme Court's reached this stage? I think the fact that the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Prop 12 means that other states could very likely introduce similar laws, uh, laws that are on the books could be strengthened. I think that this will create more accountability uh, on the part of operations that are conducting themselves in ways that are uh, discomforting for people. You know, and the fact that, you know, the agriculture industry has tried to pass ag-gag laws to make it illegal to document and to expose what is happening. The fact that Oprah Winfrey was sued by the beef industry in the 1990s for talking, raising questions about certain industry practices, I think speaks to how ultimately we need more transparency, we need more accountability. And I think that this Supreme Court case brings accountability. And I hope that the industry will start thinking more in a more open-minded way, in a more sort of rational way about how do we feed ourselves and how do we best nourish ourselves without harming the environment, without harming other animals, and to do it in a more sustainable way. And, and we can do this by eating more plant foods and fewer animal foods. In the U.S., 10 times more 
land is used for animal agriculture versus plant-based agriculture. If we start growing more plants and fewer animal products, we could actually start rewilding land, uh, bringing back ecological diversity, biodiversity. Uh, so in addition to treating animals better, I think we also need to start shifting towards uh, more plant-based foods and, and fewer feed crops and animal agriculture. Well, we haven't heard the end of this, have we? This this journey continues. You, you might have been thinking that after 30-some years you get time off, but it probably you probably won't. You're going to be engaged. And if people want to know what you're engaged in and the communications positions and points of view that you have, where do they find information on, just check, you uh, on your You can check out our website, farmsanctuaryfarmsanctuary.org. Uh, Farm Sanctuary also has an Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I also, Gene Bauer, have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. People can check us out there. Gene, thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Dan Sumner's back. Dan, it's good to have you here again. Dan is uh, Ag Economics Department at UC Davis. And, and Dan, you and I have had conversations, including a podcast in the past, where we speculated on what the impacts were going to be of Prop 12. Well, we wondered at the time whether or not the Supreme Court was going to uphold Prop 12, and that has implications. We don't have to wonder anymore, Dan. They did. They did. And, yeah, and very complicated decision yesterday. Uh, we knew it'd be released by June, so it was it was good to have it early. Uh, if, if you can call something that's drug on for decades early, I mean, and fr and frankly, this issue, uh, various animal housing measures, how how animals are treated on farms, um, and and what the law surrounding that says has has really been around for a long time. Uh, I wrote a series of things about Prop Two. Uh, 15 years ago now, more than that, um, which was the first time California treated these things in law. So this is a, a, a long wait to get some some clarity on this part of it. Yeah, it's it's been a long time coming. I've talked to some people that feel like they've been working on this for almost 40 years, yeah. Heading, oh, yeah. Heading, this, heading this direction. Now, Dan, when we've talked before, let me summarize my recollection a little bit. Uh, and and I think one thing you said, if this goes through, it ultimately will cost Californians more for pork, and it won't make much of a dent in what its intentions are. And now that the Supreme Court has uh, upheld this, is that still your feeling, that um, that we're going to pay more for pork? Oh, we'll certainly pay more for pork, and uh, the statement about int intentions uh, – uh, I hope I didn't quite phrase it that way. No, you uh, did it much better uh, than I did. <laughs> and and so so let me just say, um, it's I I find it uh, hard to speculate, and it really is spe un unlike the economics of this law, which is I think fairly clear. Um, the intentions of it uh, are really not clear. I would say, and and what I mean by that is, lots of different people have different uh, views. What is true is that this this law will expand the space and a few other little things for some hens, excuse me, some sows in North America. And the Supreme Court will have that effect. It will also have some other effects as well in, in, in the pork market. So even though Prop 12 dealt with more than pork, this legal case was only pork. And, and what it says is 
here are some characteristics if you're going to sell certain cuts of pork into California. The mothers of the pigs associated with those cuts of pork have to be housed in a California-approved housing. And, and that will expand the amount of space that uh, those sows have a little bit. And if that happens, I mean, there are some people who think that's victory enough that they didn't like the idea of gestation crates. And even though it's expanded a little bit in the in the new rulings, the sows could turn around and you could argue whether that's very much or not. But there would be a little bit more space in an open stall of some sort. Well, except except, Roger, let me be clear. Um, uh, California buys a, it, it's an integrated North American market. People keep talking about the U.S. market shares. They're irrelevant. What's relevant here is the market share of all the sows in North America. Turns out North America exports lots of pork. Yes. So the number of sows we have is enough. They're either in Canada or in the U.S. are enough to satisfy consumption in Canada and the U.S. and export a bit. Of that, California is about 8%, which means approximately about 8% of the sows in North America will be affected by this law. We have 30% that are already outside of stalls. So mm -hmm. that is 30% are already in group housing. Mm -hmm. The group housing that California demands and a few other rules uh, are a little bit different than what is typically done. Now, the, the farmers who have group housing say, for one reason or another, we, we'd rather have our sows in groups rather than in individual stalls. I'll let mm -hmm. animal science specialists and hog farmers who know hogs debate about that. I don't want to get into that. Uh, and they do debate about it. I will tell you, it's not a it's not a trivial and obvious point. Uh, as most things, it's fairly complicated, and it's not my field. But the economics is my field. And here, if if you're going to start supplying the California market, which you will if you can do it in a cost-effective way, Californians are willing to pay more. We know we're going to have to pay more. It's sort of like if you want to buy organic in general, you're going to pay more. It costs more to produce it. You'll pay for it. If you want to consume it, you're willing, and, and you really do want it, then you're willing to pay for it. Same now in California, we don't have a choice. Just like those of us that are in California buy cage-free eggs, whether we think that's a good idea or not, we do, and we pay a good bit more for it. Fine. Now we're going to have the mothers of the pigs whose pork we eat uh, for certain cuts of pork will be have to a little more space. In fact, about 20% more than the average of the groups. So the best way to think about this is of that 30% that already are in groups, some of them will say, we'll bite the bullet. Californians will pay us a little bit more and we'll give those sows that are already in groups a little more space, about 20% more. So if you and I had a, a thousand sows, and we had had them in groups of of uh, of twenty. We'd now take a couple of sows out of every pen, two or three, and or three or four, and get down to twenty four square feet each, or get up to twenty four square. And that's the main consequence here. And for that, and and 
I agree that may be a good consequence. I don't think it's what people were sold on. They were saying, oh, gee, it's going to take all these sows out of the out of the the stalls, out of the, the ones they can't turn around in. It's not going to do that. It's going to expand the space. And the reason is, if you have your sows in stalls as a farmer, you made up your mind that's the right housing for your situation. To leap all the way, Pat, you've had the chance to be in group housing, and you said, no, for me, that doesn't work for, for one reason or another. For you to now say, oh, now I think I'll leap over all of that and go all the way to the California standards. That, that's Somebody might do that, but that's not the normal case. So mm-hmm. let's say Sumner has his hogs in stalls. Wasson or has, has his hogs in little crates. Wasson has his in stalls. It's much more likely that Wasson... And probably if Wasson is operating in, say, western Nebraska or some, somewhere a little closer to California, Wasson will say, yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell pigs that meet California standards. And then when they're raised, that you know, I, I'm going to sell baby pigs at seven kilos. When they're 150 kilos, they'll be sold to California. Uh, no, the the pork will be sold to California. You know, so there's a several steps to get there. That's that's my point. And for that, uh, Californians are going to pay about three hundred million dollars a year uh, more. That's a big number. Been hearing so many big numbers these oh, days. But, but you know, it's uh, you know, let's say it's seven bucks each, Roger. Yeah. You know, seven bucks a yeah. year. You yeah. know, uh, California's a big state, so you say three hundred million bucks to somebody that lives in 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 a state with three million people. They say oh, that's a lot of money. You, right. We're 40 million. So mm-hmm. uh, if I said to you, would you pay uh, divide, would, would you pay uh, a few pennies a day, two pennies a day to give sows more space? Well, yeah, of course I would. That's only, that's seven bucks. Sure. Two pennies a day, seven bucks. Sure. Of course, would you pay two pennies a day for all the other good causes? And there's a, a lot of them. Yeah, so, no, there's but, a lot of, you know, and, and you know, that, that just reminds me, um, we should point out there are states that have prohibited gestation crates. What they haven't done though, is say that meat can't come into the state that yeah, had it, to be it, raised that way. Everybody points at Florida. There weren't any pigs in Florida. So <laughs> yeah. all of zero, approximately zero, I don't know that there was a single commercial hog operation that had sows in gestation crates in Florida when that law was not just not just a law. It's actually a constitutional amendment in Florida. Oh, yeah. So, well, I mean, it, and it goes back decades. Well, and, it was not controversial. Well, let's skip ahead to the future because this yeah. thing's this thing's open now. And you have I've heard you speak before recently, actually, about the commerce clause and how important that is. You know, a lot of people don't think about gestation crates, let alone the commerce clause. But why don't you talk a little bit about this, about this implications of to state trade and, and have we opened a Pandora's box that might have implications for different kinds of interpretations now that the Supreme Court has ruled this way. Yeah, so let me say the the Supreme Court uh, had a 5-4 majority uh, upholding California's law, and there was no majority on anything else. They split seven ways from Sunday, uh, and it was odd couples, every one of them. So you had, you had uh, uh, Justice Jackson 
of being completely distinct from Justice Sotomayor. And you had, uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch writing this opinion uh, with Thomas uh, uh, joining him, but the other so-called uh, people on the right of the court, uh, uh, like, uh, were, were totally in disagreement. So nobody really quite knows exactly how the Commerce Clause will be. The Commerce Clause is, I, I think of it as a free trade agreement. It says there, there's, you can't have trade barriers. States can't create trade barriers, the federal, and states can't create trade barriers with other countries. That's the federal government's role. It also says that the federal government can't restrict economic stuff within states. That's the state's role. So states can set minimum wages that are above the federal minimum wage. The federal government can't say, oh, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. California can have a law that says you have to have a California barber's license. The federal government said, no, no, you can't keep out Minnesota barbers like that. So there are certain things we can do within. The question is, where does this one fall? One side says, well, we're only talking about pork eaten in California. The fact that it comes from somebody else, we set our standards on what we can eat. That's the California argument. So what this hinged on, Roger, was how much did it impose really important changes on the rest of the industry? And I would argue not particularly very much. And that's essentially where the people who the the five of the five, four majority said. Now, what about if California said, well, we don't want we we think workers should be paid more. So uh, we won't buy any products. We won't buy an automobile. We won't buy any products unless uh, uh, the state where they live has a minimum wage of at least $15 an hour. Mm -hmm. We've got more than that in California. What about Texas who says, you know, uh, or better yet, Maine. Maine says, you know, we don't have illegal aliens. There's not many of them in Maine. We're not going to buy us food from a state that hires illegal aliens to work on farms. Well, that lets California out, doesn't it? We know enough about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if if every state had its own moral judgment about what it should be happening in somebody else's state, like mm-hmm. how should mother, how much space should a mother sow have, you can pretty much fragment the U.S. And this is what you were getting at earlier. You'd fragment and the beauty of free trade, and as an economist, it's just lovely. Trade across states creates wealth. It, it is, I would say, the engine of growth for what, what are we up to? About 250 years in the United States. A little less than that. We're talking about uh, uh, 1788, uh, not 1776 here. But, you know, 230 years anyway, 240 years of economic growth because we've been able to trade with each other, because we've had open borders. I could go to North Carolina and come back to California and work here. And not only that, I could do research work that was traded in California without a trade barrier, similar to you, similar to others. And my guess is that has really been a wonderful the, the evidence is really clear how powerful that kind of long-term ability to specialize and do what you do best and broaden your horizons 
It's, well, it's been wonderful for the United States. You're on the brink of the reason that I wanted to ask that question, because you just mentioned your guess is, well, I'm going to ask you what your guess is, because uh, we got this thing now and that they've made this decision for various reasons. And I've tried to read it, too. And you're right. It's strange. They're all over the place of why people were taking or why the Supremes took different views that they did. But would you guess that somebody's going to test this now some more, that who knows what it is? You you gave several hypotheticals. But does this open the door? Does this kind of a Pandora's box here that that now we're going to have others trying to test this, which may threaten the kind of relationship that's necessary, like you said, between states? So so what I gave you uh, was a uh, sermon, if you will, uh, about about the beauty uh, or, or a, a judgment about and it really is a judgment about the powerful economic role that open markets have for growth. And it's really it's created a wealth out of poverty. What I can't do, Roger, is give you a legal opinion. No. I know people that could, but but so uh, I've had people tell me, "Oh, this case had nothing to do with pork. It, had, it was an abortion case," and they explained to me why. They said, "Look, so now you have uh, a state that that thinks abortion is 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 women's rights could say we think it's immoral to to buy stuff from a company that doesn't provide that, and you we can also think of much more." complicated cases than abortion having to do with what insurance covered in it. And, and somebody else goes the other way and says, well, our people in our state would vote to, 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 to put lots of restrictions on abortion. And if we don't want to buy any products from a place where uh, that's that, that immoral behavior is allowed. So, that's why I say this is really a legal issue. I think the Supreme Court told us they're really fragmented on that sort of thing. Uh, this was a fascinating case that the Solicitor General was on the side of the pork industry, the Biden administration on the side of the pork industry against California. Most people interpret that as saying they were very concerned. California, oddly enough, California was saying, we believe in states' rights, old-fashioned states' rights. And the federal government says, wait a second, there's some limits to states' rights. And, and we've seen that conflict. And I mention abortion, abortion in that context because one of the one ways to interpret the Supreme Court on abortion is to say, well, it's up to the states. Well, here we are with a case that makes that even more complicated. A narrow case, maybe. So I'm not going to speculate about uh, how constitutional law. I know people who know constitutional law, and I'm not one of them. Uh, you don't have to be one of them, but you already speculate a little bit. And that is we got some surprises ahead of us yet. I mean, there's there's a lot to figure out. People that thought all we had to wonder about was, well, what does this mean for my price of bacon? Or what does this mean to where you're growing, raising hogs? And and you you make a raise a good case for suggesting there's broader issues that might be at play. We're still learning what those might be, and and many of them are food related issues. And and uh, you know the Justice Gorsuch made the point that different places have rules about 
horse meat, for example? Is that something you'd allow in your state or in your community? And and other things where we've we've disagreed about that. There's some, and and we sort of shrug our shoulders and say, "Oh yeah, you get to do that." This is a little stronger case than that. I'm I'm wondering, Dan. You talk with industries, and you've worked with groups. You've worked with the pork industry before, and so you've talked at all different levels of companies and the councils and the boards and so forth. Is there a message in this for industries that they have to pay attention to what they're doing because they could be challenged? at some time in the future. I, I don't know if you could go back and yeah. turn the clock back and say, well, you know, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to do gestation crates. But I just wonder if there is a, uh, if now we need to have industries and organizations look more broadly at the fact that the public is going to be curious and often ill-informed and come to bad conclusions, but they are going to become engaged and they end up being a part of your business you may wish they weren't. Well, uh, and, and, uh, um, there are two separate uh, parts to this, Roger. One is every business uh, pays attention to their pot- their customers and their potential customers. So I can tell you that there are people who had had stall housing. You could buy stall housing written on a label. Uh, you may not even know what it means. You may have thought it had to do with the pig's that you were actually eating, not their mothers. Right. Uh, but but uh, there you have it. And and you could have paid for it in California. Uh, California took the further step that said, we're not going to let people have that choice. I'm sorry, Sumner. Uh, if you want to eat pork, you got to eat it the way that uh, the voters in California say. And we did that through a voter proposition, not through legislation. And it's not by accident that that happens. We know that, as you say, these voter propositions are often pretty obscure to most of us. I know when I read them, I don't have a clue what they're about. And sometimes you have one here in California, you'll have two of them side by side, and they both sound great. They always sound good, if you like sounds, but uh, and they're opposite. And the police are on the side of one of them, and and then on, you look on the other one, and it says the the something something police association. Well, which one is the big one? I don't know. You know, I mean, there's just no way as a voter, unless you devote lots of time to figure it out. So it, it's not by accident that these things that that uh, uh, have a have a good uh, sound to them happen first through voting. Uh, They've got a proposition like this in Massachusetts that was on hold, uh, and they're going to go. I assume they'll go forward with it in Massachusetts, for example. And there may be other states that'll say, "Okay, now we'll try this." And there may be other states that say, "Absolutely not. This is this is obviously California, and what we'll leave is consumer choice." Well, when I avoid, and and I suppose. just like you and me, when we vote on these things, we don't know everything there is to know about it. And if somebody comes to you and say, well, you think it's a good idea to treat animals better? It's like, well, sure. Why not? Yeah. yeah, You know, it's and some were much more studied on the on the, the decision than others. Uh, you know, let me throw a hypothesis to you, Roger. Here, here's my hypothesis. Uh, I, I did this calculation for eggs. If you said to somebody to have cage free eggs. Would you pay 20 and, and basically eggs are easy because each of us eat about one chicken's worth of eggs on average. Sure. sure. 
If I said, Roger, we will make sure that the eggs that you eat come from a cage-free hen. Yeah. You could do that now. You go in, you buy cage-free eggs. If you lived in Nebraska, you could do that. That's right. And then you get to the store and you say, God, they cost twice as much. Uh, maybe not. Maybe next week. Mm-hmm. And that's the way most people treated the cage-free eggs. Now I say to you, you can go to the ballot box. It costs you the same 25 bucks a year, but now 40 million hens get to be freed. Not just yours, but you'll make sure Sumner eats cage-free eggs too, and everybody in your neighborhood. And it only costs you $25. And you get the satisfaction of freeing, if you will, 40 million hens. And you say to yourself, hell, of course I'll do that. Of course I will. Yeah. But I wouldn't, but I'm not such a moral guy that I do it for when I paid 25 bucks for my hen. Or if I'm a mom trying to get relatively low cost protein to my kids and it costs me a hundred bucks a year, I, you know, it's which kid doesn't get new shoes when school starts? You know, it's, it's now let me say to you, you've said, yeah, 25 bucks, 40 million hens, I'll do that. You're also imposing it on that young mother with the three or four kids. And as soon as you think about that, you say, wait, wait, maybe I don't want to force her to have to do it. Now it gets more complicated. Oh, complications. Hey, when I have complicated questions, I'm going to come back to you. Dan, Good. I'll give you complicated answers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Yep. See you later. Michael Olson is in the middle of conversations about the food chain all the time. In fact, he has food chain as, uh, Michael, you're all about the food chain. And what's eating what, Roger? I know what's eating what. Well, <laughs> today uh, on what's eating what, we've got people kind of digesting the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court has upheld California Proposition 12, which basically is saying that if you're going to sell pork in California and people are going to buy pork, it's going to have to be raised in a way that doesn't use gestation crates. It's got more language to it than that. But the main thing is like gestation crates. And and I'm wondering how you feel about that when you see a decision, because, you, again, you've been talking to farmers for a long time and consumers and others as well. And no people have concerns about farming systems. But what do you think of that, that the Supreme Court can uphold that decision? Well, first and foremost, I think what the Supreme Court was upholding was the will of the California people, which voted 63 percent to approve this Proposition 12, which was number three in in a series of of, uh, initiatives put forth by the people of California to limit what we come to know as, you know, factory farming or confinement animal operations. So we're looking at uh, coming to grips with the fact that we we think we're being cruel to animals. Now, as for me, I prefer animals that were raised on nature. Uh, They're very expensive and hard to get. You have to go out and get them. but being a Montana boy, that's what I was kind of raised on, that and farm animals. And the farm animals that we raised were also confined, not to the extent that they are uh, in these confinement feeding operations, these gestation crates and so on. Uh, so when I think about this issue, the first thing I think of was what uh, Dr. Temple Grand 
Grandin to told me in an in when I interviewed her once. And she pointed out that, um, and of course, Dr. Temple Grandin is in the business of making these animal processing facilities more humane uh, by seeing them as animals would see them. And so she's able to do things to make it a lot easier on the animals. So we, whenever she says something, we listen. And what she said was that um, the good book, the Bible, told us that we are to take uh, dominion over the animals. Now, you know, in the, our earlier times, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, a lot of us took that notion of dominion to simply mean we can do whatever we want to animals in nature because the Bible tells us to go out and take dominion. But Dr. Temple Grandin suggests that dominion means responsibility. It doesn't mean you can own these animals or, or the environment or anything. It means you're responsible for them. And so that is kind of reflected in, in the vote uh, that Californians have made to limit uh, how animals are confined. So we can't confine them to the extent that they can't move. And so um, it all is shaping up to be, a, to my mind, a pretty legitimate decision by the Supreme Court. That said, uh, when I look at confinement animal feeding operations, they remind me a lot of how we treat ourselves in cities. Uh, because, because that's exactly what a city is when you think about it, is confining a lot of people in a small space. And, and so, in effect, a, a confined animal feeding operation is treating animals pretty similar to how we treat ourselves. Uh, and it's just the nature of population, I suspect. So what choice do we really have but to be as humane as we possibly can with our ourselves, our animals, and our environment. And so uh, I look at what the Supreme Court did, and I say, well, pretty much what they had to do was a pretty reasonable uh, Supreme Court decision. And that's uh, going to be tough because it's going to cost more for food. Yeah. Um, but that's just the nature of it. This, you know, Michael Olson's third law of the food chain, cheap food isn't. <laughs> well, one one more quick thing on this, Michael. If we look at this in some ways, it could be precedent setting. Do you think we may see more of this? I mean, what's to keep, say, Californians from saying we don't like what they're doing with uh, oats in Manitoba or something? And, uh, and so you can't sell it here if you grew them in this way. Uh, does this does this open uh, open a door to more of these kinds of things? Oh, I have no doubt, no doubt about it at all. And I suspect that this uh, animal rights feat that was just uh, justified, as it were, by the Supreme Court is just the the one victory in a war to stop us from eating animals, period. Hmm. So I, I have no doubt at all that those who do not believe we should 
be eating animals are going to continue their fight to prevent us from eating animals. And when it gets right down to it, the, the irony of that, Roger, is that in, in preventing us from eating animals, they are, in effect, negating the possibility of animals having a life. Because yeah. what, reason would, will, what reason would exist for there to be animals if we aren't there to take dominion of them and use them? As well, the good Lord tells us to do. Yeah, so, and 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 then I, I guess what I'm getting at though too is, who's to say that it stops there and it doesn't go to crops? And I, I hear what you're well, saying. Of course it will. It's, of course it'll go to crops, and of course it'll go to everything, because that's once you're on a roll and and telling people what they can and can't do. Well, buckle great, your, it becomes great sport, right? Well, buckle your seatbelts, and I suspect you'll have conversations like that coming up. So if people want to hear some of your conversations, remind them where they can find you and, yeah, and find your conversation. Place, the best place to find me is at my book website, which is metrofarm.com, metrofarm.com. Or they can do a search for a food chain radio and they will probably find 1,341 editions of that show on the web someplace because they're yeah. all there. I, I'm in there somewhere. Yes, I, you I was, are. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I don't <laughs> know where are. you are. Michael, thanks for taking the time. It's an interesting time. It looks like there are more interesting times ahead, and I'm looking forward no, to having I'm, conversations with you. I'm afraid it could get too interesting someplace along the line here, Roger. <laughs> You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 